0: Is there horses around here? There may be horses somewhere. Come, Can you smell Smell something? Smell horseshit, yeah. (laughs) That's not a comment on my stories, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I can smell it too.
1: I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 10 passing the marker. Uh,
2: can I have a, a volunteer reader for the mission statement? Right here.
1: I go to a lot of drug user organizing meetings. But I didn't always. Back in the day, I was just trying to outrun dope sickness. And that was a full-time job, 24-7, 365. There's no benefits and no time off. I was deeply ashamed. I didn't mind if other drug users or my bandmates knew that I did heroin every day. But I didn't want family or coworkers to know. So I wore long sleeves in the summer and hoped nobody would notice. Every now and then, I'd catch wind of a meeting about safe injection sites or decriminalizing drugs or the overdose problem. I usually didn't want to go. But I did show up to a few. I remember one meeting. I sat at the back and pulled my ball cap down low. I wasn't saying very much. There were maybe 20 people there and there was a big guy in a plaid jacket standing at the front, beside a flip chart. This guy was no social worker type. He was in the life, you couldn't miss it. Yet here he was, marker in hand, leading the meeting. The guy asked us what kind of issues we were facing with the cops. And then there was an awkward silence. For a moment, it seemed like maybe nobody would speak up. But then a woman murmured, they took my dope and my money. The guy at the front holds up a finger, like, hang on. His marker squeaks out the letters across the flip chart. Cops taking cash and drugs. That happened to me too, a voice said. They took my whole welfare check. They kicked my ass. Now everyone's chiming in. The guy's marker is racing to keep up, filling up the flip chart page. He halts for a minute and turns to us. Everyone helps him spell incarceration. Not me. I'm keeping quiet. I'm not a great speller. And when he's finished writing, he steps back. He looks at the page, full of stories of police abuse. He turns to us and says, Okay, now what are we going to do about this shit?
2: People build skills. They're given a space where they can be leaders, and it's, it's transformational.
1: This is Ryan McNeil. Crackdown science advisor.
2: I'll think back to some of these meetings where you'll see a new face or a few new faces who, who've walked into Vandu for a meeting, and they see someone at the front of the room writing down concerns that people have. And maybe they won't pipe up and say anything at that first meeting, but it's validating for them that this is a space that they can share things in.
1: For years, Ryan's been doing research at meetings of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or Vandu. And so he sees lots of people, like me, go from the back of the room to the front, These meetings have given us a community. They helped us feel less ashamed, less alone. And most importantly, they've helped us get shit done.
2: If you look at the history of Vandu, you can basically track the history of drug user organizing and drug policy reform in Canada. So many of the things that we have are because Vandu organized and they did the work on the ground. When we couldn't move from a model of syringe exchange distribution. They just opened up a table and they started to give rigs away. When we had political stasis and, frankly, moral cowardice stalling the implementation of supervised injection sites, they just opened them up. When people were dying in alleyways, people from Vandu went out to check on people to bring them back and to keep them alive. Politicians,
1: academics, and journalists now routinely come to Vancouver to tour our harm reduction sites. And when they do, they learn that thousands of lives have been saved here. But few learn where these ideas really started, as a comment in a meeting written in marker on the flip chart.
0: by uh, just having you introduce yourself. Yeah, so uh, I'm Cal Murray. I'm from Kilmarnock in Scotland originally um, and
1: moved to Canada a few years ago. Cal's in his late 20s. He wears glasses and indie band t-shirts. We met a couple of years ago and got along right away.
0: Garth has the taste that's kind of appropriate for his age, I think. And then I have the taste of someone his age and I shouldn't have. But it's just that like indoctrinated by punk parents thing. So, like, every old punk band that he's into, I I also like.
1: So, like, after I moved out of Vancouver, uh, moved to Newfoundland, like, we kept in touch a lot. One of the things we talk about is heroin. Cal doesn't do heroin himself, but a lot of the people he cares about back home do. And Scotland's drug users have it rough. Last year, the rate of drug-related deaths was actually higher in Scotland than either Canada or the US. Even though there's no fentanyl there yet. And that made us wonder. If there's no fentanyl in the supply, why are people dying in these numbers? That's
0: what I was kind of interested in finding out is like, what is what is the other thing that, that might be killing people if it's not fentanyl?
1: I'm curious about this too. And I have a hunch that the answer will tell us something about our own situation back home. The story of overdoses in Vancouver is not just the story of fentanyl. It's bigger than that. A few months ago, Cal and I got an unexpected opportunity. A group called the Scottish Drugs Forum sent me an email. They said they were planning a conference in Glasgow and they were wondering if I would do a keynote speech. The gig came with a free flight and an excuse for me and Cal to go try and figure out what's going on.
0: Goth contacted me with this idea that we, that we go over when he'd been asked to do the conference. I mean, I feel like I can cover the sort of like, I feel like I can cover the Scottish part of it pretty well and I can help you guys out in that regard. But when it comes to actually putting together some kind of like radio
1: narrative like you guys do, I feel like I'm, I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And so a bit nervous, Cal flies to Glasgow. The plan is that Lisa and I will follow around a week later after Cal has found some people for us to talk to. I put a call out on my
0: like on my Facebook and just told people what was up and why I was home. And then once I'd gathered all the pre-interview stuff and was essentially just sitting waiting for Garth and Lisa to arrive that's when I started to panic about what I'd done. You know, I was like does any of this have any kind of cohesion at all? And is there like a path we can follow? I think about a weekend I had a complete crisis. It would have looked like someone chain smoking and frantically skipping back through the same interviews over and over again and trying to make
1: notes on them back in vancouver my doctor gives me a script to cover the time i'll be away that's called a carry so i pack up my passport microphones and methadone and then i fly to scotland But yeah, well, so it is. It is like fifteen, raining and overcast here in August. Yes. Yeah. So is this like an average day? Is it, is it like this a lot? It's like that's about three hundred days a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> I lived in London in the mid nineties, and I used to scam the train to Edinburgh or Glasgow to visit friends. Back then, I was doing heroin, methadone, Valium, and morphine. Sometimes I get the pure pharmaceutical form of some of these drugs. It'd come in a little glass ampule. You break it open, draw the liquid up, and off you go. Safe supply, 90s style. So I can't really remember everything from back then. Although I do remember one time that I fell in a duck pond. Cal and I head over to George Square. It's a slab of concrete with some statues, columns, benches, and pigeon shit. The square is bordered by ornate, official-looking buildings. This is where the people of Glasgow regularly come to protest. And today, there's a hundred people here for International Overdose Awareness Day.
3: This is my daughter. She was 16 years old when she died of a heroin overdose. And it took 12 hours for her to die. 12 hours. And every single death that we heard a few months ago, 1,184 deaths of total despair. And families are left with us as well, like me. Like me. So we're broken
4: forever. We're broken forever. The UK government has got a lot to answer for with the denial with the drug consumption rooms, the safer injection rooms. There is money about and we need to all get political and demand better from the services and politicians. Thank you.
3: So there's got to be an end goal. Yeah. To stop using drugs, you need to stop using drugs. So I stand here today a free money of addiction. Yeah. An
2: example that you can recover from
0: to this stuff, and you can recreate your life. Overdose so awareness stuff that I've been to in in Vancouver, like you know, is obviously marching through the downtown east side, and has everyone from the downtown east side taken part. The overdose awareness event in Glasgow was very much like long-term recovery, and then grieving parents. <laughs> so oh. you want to just hold the mic as you're going to hold it, and then I'll, sorry, I'll be holding this right. for you
5: anyway, Donna.
1: Um, check two, check one, check two.
5: Just because we checked one, two,
1: one, two. One of the people Cal arranged for me to speak to was a woman named Donna Boyd. I heard she was starting a radio show and that it was going to be about recovery. So we went down to Sunny Govan Community Radio. The station's in a little storefront in a working-class neighborhood. Booth number three is actually the bathroom. Thanks for thanks for talking to us. Oh, thanks for asking. Could you introduce yourself to the tape like this the way you would on the on the air here?
5: Oh, I'm not even used to doing that, but I'm Donna, um Donna Boyd, I'm in recovery. Um, I had 20 odd year inactive addiction, um, longer using different substances and I, I found recovery um, about three years ago.
1: Yeah, so you said you started like 23 years ago, I guess that would be?
5: Yeah. Um, the I kind of started taking different pills and buzzing gas and stuff. Um, before that, my granny used to kind of give us um, the odd DF or the odd Valium. Uh, What's a DF? Dehydrocodine. Right. An, an opiate. Um, yeah. For there and it was like drinking at weekends, the ecstasy, the party scene over my teens. Um, and at 17, 18, I was introduced to um, heroin and methadone.
1: This kind of poly drug use is common in Scotland. In particular, lots of people use benzodiazepines with their opioids. Last year, 67% of the drug-related deaths in Scotland involved benzos. This summer, we started to see benzo-related overdoses in Vancouver, too.
5: Uh, I, I was in 60, 60 milligrams a um, volume for early teens, and I tried to get back on them when I relapsed. Um, th- it was a no-go. The ways of prescribing them had changed. Nobody was getting long-term benzo prescriptions anywhere
1: in north america we had this big moral panic about oxys and over prescribing the same thing here with valium in both places doctors started cutting people off to cover their ass and that left people scrambling to get well a toxic drug supply filled this new demand quickly and bodies started stacking up so you've been prescribed prescribed benzos, then mm-hmm. you couldn't get them mm-hmm. then you were starting to fill the vacuum that was created by dealing, selling benzos. Yep,
5: and, yeah. and taking them obviously high, yeah. <laughs> high. Yeah, get high on your own getting supply. Cu- and then getting
1: caught Donna says it. eventually she got nicked for <laughs> selling benzos and yeah. weed, um, and that so meant she had to do some time.
5: I got to jail my boy was 10 year old um, I thought right, if I'm in the jail I may as well do something productive, came off my methadone in there um, came back out and I was back using within weeks
1: why is it so important, I hear this from a lot of people, like, I've been on methadone for 16 years, I just take it, I took it this morning, get up, do my day, I mean, we work long hours doing this thing, and I I, I kind of think, well, if I'm on it for forever, that's okay, my life's all right, but I hear, around here, I hear lots of people saying, i am just, i got to get off it, I've got to get done with it, you know?
5: I, I don't know, maybe you can help me here too. Yeah. Um, I'm no naive or close-minded to think that abstinence works for everybody. Mm. Everybody's recovery is personal to them, and what works for them, that's fine. Do you know what I mean? I don't. I don't criticise anybody else's recovery. I just know that if I take one thing, I don't stop. Do you know what I mean? For me, it was never enough methadone. I was always using something else on top of it. You know what I mean? i um, mm-hmm. always using the top of it, it was to get me sorted in the morning, and then I'd boot using, um, because I never had anything else in my life, as I say, I can only speak for myself.
1: Well we're doing the same thing, you're doing radio, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like you're looking for that connection that mm-hmm. way, That's way it. back in, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and when did you first start coming to the radio station?
5: It was it was a care manager when I first moved back up here, um, and I was on methadone. Had suggested there was a community radio station that was run in, in another building. Um,
1: so like a social worker was suggesting this is a thing you could do.
5: Yeah, uh, because it was it was a community radio station. He was trying to help me find things to fill my time, and
1: that's great. It's like radio is treatment. Yeah, maybe they should get prescription radio. You know, they should just ah, well, write you out and say go off and say
5: <laughs> yeah. right.
1: I told Donna that Cal and I really wanted to know why there were so many overdose deaths right now. And to do that, we figured we should talk to some current drug users. She said she couldn't help because she's not in the life anymore. And so we decided to go visit an academic instead. How are your levels, Cal?
0: I think we're pretty good. We're good to go. Um,
1: Could you introduce yourself for the tape vendor? Yeah. So official
6: title, or yeah. So my official title is Doctor Andrew Macaulay, and I'm a senior research fellow here at Glasgow Caledonian University.
1: And how would you do it unofficially? Hey, uh, I'm just Andy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got the both
6: now. Yeah. I suppose I first got into uh, drug use research uh, back in around 2003, 2004. That's when we had these headlines of drug related deaths. Uh, the numbers were around 350 per annum at that point Uh, and the headlines in the newspapers were one drug death uh, every day in Scotland,
1: national emergency, national disgrace And that national disgrace has only gotten worse. Over the last 15 years, the number of drug related deaths has nearly tripled in Scotland Scotland has been quite a kind of pioneer, you would say, of harm reduction
6: uh, ever since the HIV epidemics of the 80s, needle and syringe provision was kind of Really rolled out here in response to that. We've All had the national naloxone program, with the first world, uh, the first country level naloxone program here. But in terms of drug policy,
1: that took a ton back in 2007. All of Scotland's political parties: the Conservatives, Labour, SMP, the Greens. They all sign on to this new thing called the Road to Recovery. If you read it, it was this almost quite evangelical
6: document about we were going to move to a kind of drug free society and everybody was going to be in recovery and everything was going to be rosy in the garden. So overnight, a lot of services went from being drug treatment services or drug support services to drug recovery services. Methadone in Scotland is probably more stigmatised than it is any other place I've been in the world. The, the most famous term you'll get over here is parked on methadone. It is. it is Every time I see that, I kinda, a part of inside of me just So what does that dies. mean? What, is it, what do the people mean by that? Because I've heard that a lot. People have told me that. Yep. You quite often get narratives in the media about people who've been parked on methadone for 20, 25, 30 years and that they got into the methadone programme because they were promised they would be off drugs. But the voices that you don't see in the media are people who have been on methadone for a period of time. They're quite stable on it. they live kind of normal functioning life. Uh, They're quite happy on their methadone. They're holding down a job. But these people are hidden from the narrative. Absolutely.
1: I was until a year or two ago myself. Canada and Scotland seem to have a lot in common when it comes to methadone. In both countries, people are getting dope sick before their next dose. And they're topping up from the black market. In Canada, that's because of methadose, as Crackdown listeners know. In Scotland, it's because doctors are under-prescribing almost half of all methadone patients. So how many people are on methadone here?
6: The most recent estimates suggest that somewhere between 40 to 50% of those uh, people who are uh, what we call problem drug users or who meet the criteria for uh, methadone.
1: So that'd be like 20,000? About twenty-five thousand.
6: Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that compares quite poorly to even to England, where the percentage is nearer sixty percent, sixty-sixty-five percent, and compared to other countries in Europe who do better, like in Scandinavia, places like Norway have uh, around eighty-five to ninety percent of the opioid user cohort. See, we're we're
1: we're at that shitty rate too. In uh, in BC, we have like. Less than 50 yep. percent of people on, on methadone or, or another consistency.: or Yeah. Yep. All this methadone stuff, it could be a major driver of Scotland's overdoses. Then there's naloxone. People tell us they don't want to carry it because they don't want to get hassled by the cops, and the ambulances take way too long to show up. Scotland also doesn't have any safe injection sites. There is a small prescription heroin pilot starting up, but it will only be for 20 people. Like we had a new uh, service put into the
6: train station that was open from 7 in the morning to 11 at night, which quickly became the busiest Neil and Syringe Exchange in the so city. So just, just down there? Yeah, just down, down there, there at wherever, Central Station, yeah. yeah. But that new exchange that was put into the train station was closed down. So oh. that was direct response to the outbreak, became the busiest in Scotland, and then was closed down by the rail company. Uh, because they were worried about drug-related incidents in the, the train station. So you can see the kind of battle we're up against despite having some of the strongest indicators of drug-related harm we've ever had. We've still got other parts of society
1: uh, kind of working against that, uh, the right. efforts to reduce harm in the city. So when I'm, I work with a group, I've been with this group, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users for a long time. And um, when I go somewhere, I try to find someone like me or activists who are drug users you know who who are in a drug user union or something and i don't know what that is here uh, drug users in general
6: don't have a voice that there isn't a collective body there isn't a drug user <laughs> union there isn't eh uh, there isn't a kind of a kind of collective why do you think
1: that is uh, i'm not sure but like it's, you guys kind of you guys had the trade union militancy here that was phenomenal you know you had open shooting war on the streets in the 19th century of the city over working conditions and stuff and so i you're right it
6: it 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 almost goes against their history not to have that i mean i would certainly support investment or a or time or whatever it's put into trying to amplify that up the way yeah i think if there was ever time for a drug user union to kind of step in as a window of opportunity, the time is probably now.
0: That sounds like over an hour, so if you want to get to our next thing, we should probably wrap up shortly.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Between Donna and Andrew, I was starting to get the bigger picture. But I still hadn't met any active drug users yet. And I could tell that Cal was getting a bit nervous about that. Fair enough. It can be stressful working on this show.
0: We are at the Glasgow Cathedral, which is right next to the Necropolis. But Garth, you like wanted to come to the Necropolis, which is like the big old graveyard at the top of the city. Mm-hmm. And you think you have a memory from here, or is it you read about it, or why did you want to come here?
1: I don't fucking know.
0: I could see Garth's frustration, um and he just seemed like quite kind of disillusioned with the whole thing. I mean, I was the one who who'd set up a lot of these interviews, or most of them, and, and I. I was starting to feel quite guilty.
6: BBC Radio Scotland.
4: Now, Germany has them, France has them, Spain and Portugal have them, Norway, Denmark, Canada has them. Drug consumption.
1: It turns out that while we're in the middle of making this episode, the country's debating whether or not to open a supervised injection site. The BBC invites me to come on their national morning show, so Lisa, Cal, and I walk over to their Glasgow building. A big glass box on the River Clyde with a bunch of satellite dishes on the roof
4: in Europe. Um, But the Westminster government has so far blocked the idea, despite acknowledging the international uh, evidence. So what is the international um, evidence? Um, We have with us uh, today Garth uh, Mullins, who is the host of Podcast Crackdown, um, also a former heroin user. Good morning to you, Garth.
1: Hiya, thanks for having me. So
4: so why would the the user go to one of these rooms, rather than just, if they've got the drugs, uh, why would they not just use the drug wherever they wanted, rather than to go into this formal setting?
1: Uh, because we don't want to die, you know. Uh, they, they, there's a place where you can be uh, assured that someone will save your life. Because of all the drug consumption rooms anywhere in the world, there's been no fatalities, uh, and they've reversed thousands of overdoses just in Canada alone, just in the city where I am. And that would be in the
4: user's consciousness
1: to not die yes i mean and i can't talk for every user but me i I didn't want to die i was me
0: and lisa were sitting just outside the studio listening um and we were both like shocked and appalled by that statement or by that question
2: Garth, we know exactly what your angle is. You want normalised drugs use because you've been a long-time drugs user and that's what you're arguing for and it was clear from the questions that the... Uh, well, 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 well,
4: well the David, I on. really don't think that we should be making accusations um, and, no, Garth, I would no, like you why to why respond. Not, no, David, you did you did ask for, for time to speak and I, and I think I've been pretty fair in allowing you that. Garth, would you like to respond?
1: Sure. I, I mean, my agenda is really clear. I've been transparent. I would like to continue to be alive. I would like my community and my friends to continue to be alive. In the time I've been around, I've known 50 or more people who've died from overdose. I don't want that. And I see that happening here, and I don't want that for Scotland either.
2: First of all, 25% of the deaths in Scotland come from state-prescribed methadone.
1: That's not true. That's absolutely uh, not true.
2: uh, uh, Look, uh, uh, you were allowed to speak without interruption.
1: Yeah, I'm just not going to let people talk bollocks, though, on the air. That's OK, all right.
4: Sure. Well, well, Garth, well, one thing, we, we won't use that language. Thank you very much, Sorry, my, and I apologise for that. Um, David, please, please, I, I assure you, I am not in any way cutting off. We have to take travel at this point just because there are things... But please, I promise you, we'll have travel, and we'll come right back to you, David, I promise. Uh, Victoria's on the travel.
0: I think that BBC interview um, really sort of revealed that There's a large percentage of people in Scotland who don't really see drug users as like full human beings. But then there was a kind of a little bit of a kind of jubilation and triumph because Garth got to say bollocks on the BBC. My grandmother was listening to it and she was like really uh, she loved it and was getting like text messages like go Garth and stuff.
1: I'm down to the last batteries here so uh... I think I have some more in my bag. Yeah that's good. Maybe it just means we're done with the episode when that big bag of batteries is empty. It's windy and pissing with rain. Cal and I are in a town called Kilmarnock. It's about a half hour south of Glasgow. One guidebook calls Kilmarnock the crappiest place to live in Scotland. It's where Cal grew up.
0: They've had kind That's of recent thick. licks of paint yeah. by the looks of things, but yeah. a lot of them are old, kind of crumbling. Um, do you call it stucco, maybe? Yeah, what do you call it? Uh, like pebble dash, maybe, something like that. Yeah, there you go,
1: pebble dash. Yeah. I like that better.
0: <laughs> I wanted to show my friend where I was from. I like it. It was the place where, like, all of my kind of formative, like, interactions and experiences with drugs uh, happened. Here, where we'll they've got these new houses and a health center and a, I think, a nail salon down there. This is where I, I grew up. There was a big block of like really run down flats here that they demolished in the late nineties. So you, were, you
1: grew up in that block?
0: Yeah, and the, yeah. The, the block that would have been right in front of us that we were looking now. Um, right. We were in the top floor and had like a little, a little balcony and a view out to the, the coast and the Isle of Arran from here on a clear day and stuff.
1: Cal's family lived on a scheme, a big tract of post-war housing built by the government. In the 70s, nearly a third of people in the UK lived in this kind of public housing, and that kept rents pretty reasonable. But it changed under Thatcher. She launched a right-to-buy campaign, which was basically a right-wing ploy to privatise that kind of housing. After that, it became harder and harder to find a decent, affordable place.
0: Anyway, they told my parents, you'll be, you'll be there for six months and we'll get you something better. And I think we were there for seven years, or ten years actually, sorry, before, before they moved us out into a quote-unquote better place, but the better place just meant there were no icicles on the inside of the window.
1: This part of the country used to be all about mining and industry. Cal lived about a half hour from an old coal pit, and there were lots of factories. They made carpet, toilets, and Johnny Walker whiskey. But under Thatcher, a wave of austerity and union-busting decimated the economy, and Kilmarnock hasn't been the same since.
6: In a large housing scheme in Kilmarnock, more than a thousand families live in a mix of privately owned and council houses. A handful of those households agreed to be filmed over a year. The scheme follows some of their stories.
0: The BBC did like a four-part series, a a kind of poverty pond thing of like, you know, look at this, um, look at this horribly sort of deprived post-industrial area. Mm. They followed a few people. Basically, everybody they featured was a heroin user, and they would like, they had footage of them like injecting and stuff.
6: There are rumours in the scheme that Marvin has started selling drugs, and Bullet has certainly had enough.
0: We started getting like skiing tourists coming down from Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah, we did have like. You know, like I'd, I'd be standing at the bus stop here just after that aired, and like a car full of like sort of young lads from Glasgow would pull up and they'd be like, Oh, excuse me, like, is this the ski for the telly? These are all <laughs> fucking dirty
3: bastards. And. I've had enough. Where <laughs> he go?
6: Marvin does eventually catch up with Bullet. Only for the police to catch up with him, with three hundred and ten diazepam in his pockets.
0: I think what's missing from the show really is like showing our lives in a kind of full and rounded way. For whatever reason, Comarnark has sort of punched way above its weight in terms of the like the musicians and the bands that it's produced over the years. It's a very small town, but it's very like sort of easy to find your people in a town like that. We would like, there would be one guy when, like, when I was young, there was one guy who had like a house that was big enough to have a bunch of instruments in and some like basic recording equipment. And like every weekend, we would like all the musicians that wanted to be at his house would just head over there and we'd make like some shitty album on a, on a Saturday or whatever. So like everyone's poor basically and everyone's in it together. So you get this kind of like egalitarian culture and, and music and, and the arts there. And that kind of extends to everything. Like everyone's just kind of in it together
1: almost everyone there was one group that was ostracized in kilmarnock heroin users cal remembers the local small-time dealer he lived just down the road
0: he was like this big guy with like a sort of big gold chain and like black normally i think sort of black polo shirts really tanned um and then this kind of like Sort of just hair at the back and sides that we, he was like dyed jet black.
1: You know, is bald on top with dyed dyed hair. Just so yeah. trying to look younger than he was.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember right, he did have a sunbed in the in the house because you could see like the blue light on at night. <laughs>
1: Cal was afraid of this guy as a kid. He had to walk past his house to get to school, and he remembers crossing the street unnecessarily the to right. keep as much distance as possible.
0: Was quick. It was almost like yeah. there would be toxic fumes or something. You know, you're like you just don't want to be anywhere near it like you think there's anthrax in there or something. It's always in the back of people's heads, I think, that, like, oh, look at this cunt, like, what if he's got a blade on him, or what if he starts bothering me for something, you know?
1: This all seemed pretty normal to Cal, until he was about 16. he just dropped out of high school and was touring with a band.
0: And was suffering under the delusion that I was going to be a rock star, and was, uh we would have, like, there was a song that went into a kind of big jam at the end of it, and then, like, occasionally that jam would turn into this song if someone decided to, like, start the opening riff of it,
1: and it and sometimes it wouldn't. So it was, like, never on the set list, but would sometimes pop up. For some reason, this song stuck with Cal. Every time they played it, he thought about the lyrics. They were written by the singer in his band, a guy Cal had known his whole life.
0: A couple of little lines in it that were kind of, like, alluding to, to like, injection drug use, and I I wasn't, like, sure if that was just being used as a kind of like, here's an illustration of like, you know, how low someone can get or whatever. So but there was but it didn't it didn't feel like that. It felt more kind of like human and, and full than than that. It felt like someone was kind of writing it from from like a, a perspective of experience maybe.
1: And so Cal asks the singer, what's this song about anyway? And he says, it's about a friend of mine.
0: A guy he grew up with who who like got into heroin and and, and like how
1: he got into it and the sort of reasons. The singer stuck to that story for years until a whole new tour. The band was hanging out after a gig, drinking, and the songwriter just blurts it out. This song, it's not about a friend of mine. It's actually about me. This is a person that I was
0: like really close to, right? Um, Like someone who I love and someone who's really close to me and I need to kind of like reckon with the idea that I've been, I think, like othering and just pushing away like heroin users in my mind up until that
1: point. So it made like the other... Like, not the other, like, all of a sudden. Here in Cal's story, I relate to the singer. I get why I didn't want to tell Cal what that song was about at first. Shame is corrosive. It's paralyzing. And it keeps you from reaching out to the people who care about you. Ultimately, that's a big part of the reason why we're so vulnerable. This is a problem everywhere. But it seems to be particularly bad here in Scotland. There's no doubt this is a big part of the reason why so many people have died from overdose here. It's
0: not just sort of my one story of like one guy hiding like his his heroin use from me because he felt like personally ashamed on the basis of our relationship. It's like everybody you go through your life in Scotland and you you find more and more of these people that are close to you that have been like hiding something in relation to their drug use, and like even just trying to like talk to people about it is is extremely difficult. Like walls and barriers will go up like almost instantly. And I want, I just, more than anything, I just want to know, like, what's going on with my friends and like, and the people around me. Like, I don't want people to have to hide anything from me at all.
1: Back in Glasgow, Cal and I are having a busy day. There's an event in the afternoon that we were asked to attend by the Scottish Drugs Forum, and we're not exactly sure what it's about.
0: We thought it was like an obligation,
1: and we would just go along to this thing
0: that was like tied to a conference. I think we went back to the apartment for like 20 minutes to dry off from the rain and then realized we had to drag ourselves back out again and we hadn't had anything to eat and we were just fucking miserable.
1: Tron Church is an 18th century sandstone block with a spire that seems bigger than the main bit. Out front there's a statue of a homeless Jesus sleeping on a bench, which seems like a nice symbol but also a waste of a bench. An activist named Jason Wallace meets Cal at the front door. So we meet Jason.
2: Would you like to come in? Hi. And
0: Jason takes us down into the basement. Um, and there's like a little room that uh, we go in. that has got like sort of two round tables. And there's like a few of us sitting around the tables.
2: So have you, met. this is Garth
3: uh, Mullins and Cal. Hi. So these guys are over for Canada.
1: It's, it's good to be here. Uh, I'm from a drug user group in Canada, like yep. a union. Uh, I- For the first time since we arrived in Scotland, we're meeting with active drug users, people who are in the trenches of the drug war right now. Immediately to my left
0: is this couple, uh, Michelle and Cass, sort of like mid-40s, right across from me is this guy Robbie, Um, Robbie's got like sort of wavy ginger hair. Over past Robbie we've got uh, Martin Coyle, Martin's uh, very small. About 5'5". Five, five.
5: Because I wasn't, and I didn't touch drugs until I was thirty-five, and the first drug that I took was heroin. So. Oh. So
1: I, I'm forty-eight, and somebody said that I would, if I was lived here, I'd be the train spotting generation. Yeah, you, you guys heard this. Yeah. I'm a yeah. train I'm fifty-four, oh, yeah. I'm train spot. Yeah, you are
3: train spotting generation. Forty-eight, you'd, you'd spud.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I'm not ripping off my friends exactly. right? <laughs> Trainspotting is a book and a film about Scottish heroin users in the 1980s dope fiends of my vintage get called the Trainspotting generation here and all of us around the table are part of that generation we all start to shoot the shit about using drugs in Scotland
0: Immediately there's a huge difference in the things that we're being told. Housing problems where like people are getting no communication and there's like Robbie's sort of getting locked up for like three days and then his methadone prescription gets cut down to 30 mils from 100.
3: Wanted. What about the safe and kitchen rooms? So that's a no go now because it needs a change in the legislation. Yeah, I, I tell you what,
1: they wouldn't give them to us either. We had to open that. them illegally first. Right. The government said no, 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 and so we just said fuck you, and we opened them up, like mm-hmm. put tents up, took a rent a storefront, and we say to the police, "You want to shut us down? Come on and do it. You know, we'll take you to court. We'll."
3: Would there be someone there? in the Canada Beach one would there be someone there that, and one, there someone there that, that was um, trained in um, in administering Narcan, not no oxygen. No mm-hmm. Yeah, T- T- you T- all are, aren't Aye. you? Aye. Yeah.
1: It's it's better to have someone who's a drug user who knows heroin because the then you can spot. Oh, he's yeah. just yeah. nodding. He's okay. Leave
3: him. Oh, oh this guy uh, went blue. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you can get it in him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the
0: kind of energy in the room, of like drug user organizing, was like really thrilling, and I got this kind of, this kind of extreme like adrenaline dump where I'm like just sweating buckets and like trying to hold it together this could be the fucking start of something that's like really important and like could potentially save hundreds or thousands of lives over the next
1: you know few years it's because we um, don't, don't have yes. a political power, right? We don't mm. vote as a bloc, we're not organized, we don't have economic yeah. power. Mm-hmm. Right? But but if we can make ourselves an irritation to them, like mm-hmm. if we can make ourselves we sort of raise and the scam. cost of oh, yeah. yeah, the yeah, exactly. something yeah. And yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 and 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 we never have won anything without twisting people's arms oh, or doing yeah, it illegally it first, you know? This
2: is a stuff that interests me personally, right?
3: Yeah.
1: One of the guys, Martin Coyle, was a little quiet in the meeting. He's a wily old veteran of the Glasgow drug scene, and I could tell he had more to say. So I grabbed him outside of the church for a quick chat.
3: Oh, and yeah. the first time I tried it, I was like, man, he goes landed, you know? It's like, yeah, I'm home here. This is doing for me what I've been searching for all this time. That's
1: exactly what I said. I said, I'm home.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's the way I felt. It was like it I took thought, Fuck,
1: this must be what other people feel like all the time. I feel yeah.
3: like normal. normal. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm trying to help people in Canada understand what the overdose crisis feels like here. What does it feel like as a drug user? It's here? it's scary. It's yeah.
3: it, it's scary. I mean, I came back from my partners, my girlfriend's two two, um, two weeks ago, and and I came back. Uh, I got a phone call within an hour. I've been back in back home to tell me that. One of my friends, Ross, had, had died of uh, these fake tablets that are gone about in Glasgow. And then within an hour I got another phone call to tell me that another one of my friends had died. And these guys were three and two year clean. I mean, they used once um, after that amount of time and both died, you know, with that first time of using uh, the drug. It's, it's scary because you don't know what a lot of the drugs are, are getting mixed with in this, in this country now.
1: Talking to Martin and the group felt good. For the first time we weren't hearing about things that happened five years ago or that academics have studied. We were hearing about problems on the ground and they seemed so solvable. Everyone in the room would be much better off if they just had a safe supply of drugs, if they just had a decent place to sleep, and if the police got off their backs. And all that can be won. It'll just take a fight. Thanks. thanks. Thanks for talking, No thanks, I guess have to go back, isn't Yeah. We'll probably chat more. If you're, are you around tomorrow? Yeah. Well, why, were you, why, why, did you, why were you sweating through the jacket?
0: Um, just because I was like, I get a kind of rush from from being at like the embryonic stages of something that might be like the start of maybe a drug user union in, in Glasgow, something that might be a little bit like Bandu. like drug users here in the city centre, like actually starting to gather now, and that's like really. It gives me like a, a, a pure kind of adrenaline buzz when I'm when I'm in amongst it, you know.
1: Cal looks off quietly for a second. I could feel his optimism evaporating.
0: I'm sorry. There's, there's like I don't know. there's a thing where I, when I start talking like that, I, I, there's a kind of imposter syndrome. You know what I mean? Because I'm well, I'm here with I'm here with you, and it feels like
1: you don't need me to legitimise you here, man. I know. But that's it's it. like where you're from, the people come up with. Like this is your fucking old issue as much as mine. It's like we're all standing aside to wait for the perfect savior. Like the perfect, I don't know, model drug user with the right characteristics to be this much marginalized and this much aware of this issue. It just doesn't happen that way. It never does, you know. Yeah. Shit gets done by the people who show up.
3: Like non-related issues. Do we need milk? Oh yeah, we
2: do, yeah.
1: Sir. My official reason for coming to Scotland was the Scottish Drugs Forum Conference. And one of the things I was supposed to do at the conference was to lead a workshop. After the meeting at Tron Church, it was clear what the workshop should be: how to start a drug user union. Mm -hmm. This woman, uh, Ann Livingston, who's an activist in Vancouver, she just, she just got uh, a flip chart like this, like this big pad of paper thing and a pen, and started asking people what the issues what they're facing. Garth's so, just
0: like standing at the front of the room with his flip chart and a marker in his hand, and like, he starts talking through, uh, basically how a first meeting of a drug user union might go.
1: I'll just get it started. I pretend that he put up his hand and said, sickness, and so. You write out that. And my writing is terrible, so you'll just have to... Oh, and I'll translate. Uh, Rattling. Uh. (laughs) I look out in the room. It's packed. People are standing along the back, and there's a lot of drug users here. I say that in Vancouver, a big part of these meetings is talking about the kind of shit that we're dealing with in our lives. I think the first thing that someone says, which is probably the first thing that someone says that a
0: lot of these things, is the police. He tran- translates it and puts like polis, which is what we'd say for police here, on the flip chart.
1: So listen to, that, listen to this. this, this is exactly what a meeting is like. We're doing it right here. Several weeks in, maybe we, we take a few of those issues and we start to write a, like a, a mission statement or a manifesto or something like that that says what we're all about.
0: And, and uh, what we want to do? Am I am I going too fast on stuff here? No, no. And, and so it was about halfway, and this guy Gary, who we'd met the night before um, at the ch- at the church again, he starts kind of like speaking up.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: Gary's in his mid thirties. He's got short buzzed hair. You can see a few scars on his head. And
0: then Garth just gets him up. Garth's like, "Well, why don't you come and cheer it?"
1: Hey, hey Gary. Can, can you can you chair this? Can you choose the speakers? <laughs> wait,
3: come on, man! Come on! Come on! Come on! No, no, no! Come on! This is how it works, man. This is how it works.
2: Come on, man! Do it! Hey. <laughs> I can't keep up. With all
1: Gary chuckles people. under his breath. I'm gonna batter you gary basically just takes the center of the
0: the the stage area if you want to call it that like the front of the room people are putting their hands up and gary's just like you you you
1: are you cheering this man (laughs)
3: Uh,
0: meanwhile garth has just kind of moved to the side and is just like standing by the flip chart
3: Uh, i'm I'm sorry
1: everybody we're running out of time and somebody else is going to watch this room but we've we've written the you know, we've all written these four or five pages here. We just did the first meeting of what would be a drug user union here, right? So, fucking A to you guys.
0: And then Garth hands over the marker that he was using for the flip chart, like, hands it over to Gary as a sort of kind of gesture of officially, like, this this is yours now, like, this is your thing to chair, and you can go on and continue this.
1: So I, I passed the baton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you! All the ingredients of a Scottish drug user movement are here, ready to catch fire. And this kind of a movement is desperately needed. Scotland shows how capitalism and the drug war are a deadly combination. There's a shitty methadone program fake benzos, police harassment, anemic harm reduction programs, a constant drumbeat of abstinence only policies, collapsing industries, hatred of drug users, and internalized shame. It's gonna take a lot of work to turn things around. We got the same sort of problems in Vancouver too. It's not just fentanyl. We also have a toxic mix of austerity and alienation. We're gonna to need to deal with all that shit in order to stop the deaths. And that starts with the flip chart. Crackdown is usually made on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil but this month we're in Scotland. A lot of people helped us out on our trip. Thanks to Martin Coyle, Gary, Robbie, Cass, Babs, and Michelle. Also thanks to Donna Boyd and everyone at Sunny Govan Community Radio. That's at 103.5 FM in Glasgow, and you can listen online at sunnyg.com. Thanks also to Amanda Craig, Mark McGee from the band Gyro Babies, Peter McDade, Andrew McCauley from Glasgow Caledonian University, Jason Wallace and Kirsten Horsborough from the Scottish Drugs Forum. Thanks to Fallon for the 11th hour beer and pizza money, and to Valdoro Chippy. I'm Garth Mullins, the host and executive producer of Crackdown. Sam Fenn is our senior producer, Alex Kim, Lisa Hale, Polly Legier, and this month, Cal Murray are our producers. Crackdown's editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Dave Murray, and Al Fowler. Rest in peace, Sharice Kiwatin. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil from the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Original score written, performed by Sam Fenn, Jacob Dryden, Kai Paulson, James Ash, Cal Murray, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. Funding for Crackdown comes from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and our Patreon supporters. You can follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. New episodes air on the last Wednesday of each month. Thanks for listening. Keep six
0: that did make me want a roast beef sandwich and i don't even know what that tastes like <laughs> that that piece of the show yeah, yeah. it's like oh yeah that sounds good hold on a minute i, I don't haven't know. had
1: a roast beef sandwich for since i was a kid maybe i was a vegetarian for so long but that makes me want one now just thinking about it yeah maybe someone could do us a vegan roast beef uh. <laughs>
5: You have been listening to A-Sided Media Production. C-I-D-E-D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.